Well, today we're starting a new series that we've titled Guard Your Heart. It's coming from the verse that we're about to read together this morning. It's a, a look over the course of the summer at something I think that is really important for not just us as a church, but for our culture at large. And, and that is mainly to be able to see the intersection between uh, our faith and, and our emotions, to be able to navigate both spiritual growth and maturity as we develop an emotional maturity as well. And I hope this morning to show you kind of where we, where we want to go with this series, and then we'll unpack in several subsequent weeks all the various, uh, I think, intricacies of this main idea that we'll uh, begin with today. And so today we start that here in Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4 is, is, a, is a great chapter because it's, it's essentially the wisdom of a father to a teenage son. This is a dad sitting his son down and educating him on that which is most important and most significant in life and giving him wisdom so that he can navigate life with an eye towards uh, how he would follow the Lord or best develop as a, as a human being made in the image of God. And, and, and what I love about the wisdom literature in the Old Testament is that uh, it, it's, it's, it's given to us so that we don't have to make the same mistakes that our fathers, our grandfathers, and our ancestors made. This is the collection of best practices handed down to the people of God throughout the centuries. And so here we find that coming from a father to a son in Proverbs chapter 4. I'm going to read one verse. We'll glance at a few others this morning, but this is our main one that gives us our big idea for not just this series, but also for this chapter. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This is the word of the Lord. About a year ago, I, I had to do a project uh, for something I was doing in school at the time called a genogram. And have you ever heard of this? It's essentially you walk through with a supervisor or a coach, basically like your family lineage. And, and I would walk through like my, my mom and my dad's uh, family of origin story and then their parents. And, and it goes back, I think, three generations. And essentially what the coach or the supervisor is looking to do is as they walk you through kind of how your family has been shaped and formed over the years. They're helping you see perhaps some patterns, some um, predictable behaviors that have been passed on through the generations amongst your family, some ways of, of thinking or acting or operating that kind of become familiar. And it didn't take very long at all as we went down like my dad's side of the family to pinpoint there's this one particular trait that has manifested itself in multiple generations in my dad's family. Namely, that the men in that side of the family uh, had the ability to fly off the handle with very little warning. And this is a common family trait that was passed on. My, my grandfather, uh, he was, uh, I think, best, I could tell you, he's about 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. I didn't really know him. Uh, my dad's dad, my dad was... The, the last one born of a family of six, and then, and then I was born kind of late. So my granddad was really, really old whenever, whenever I was born. And, uh, but the stories about him, as I would bump into people from the county where I was raised, it would come up from time to time. I would say, tell them my name, and they'd say, oh, you're Banny Gibson's grandkid. And I, I, I thought his name was Ray, but Banny is the name of, of a fighting rooster, the smallest, meanest chicken and that was my grandpa was known as Banny Gibson. And I was like, okay, yeah, I guess that's my granddad. But he was a little guy, but apparently he was quite violent and mean. And then my dad and his brothers just sort of embodied those traits. My dad being the youngest, I think he caught the majority of that temperament. Uh, and so when they would go to work on the farm together, they would typically have to team up and do something. 
some big project, it was inevitable that someone was going to lose their mind. A piece of equipment would break, a cow wouldn't do what it was supposed to do, you know, didn't matter. And eventually it would become sort of like a, a test of masculinity to see who can set something on fire, you know, kick the cow, drive the tractor into the ditch and, you know, call it names, whatever. Someone would go bananas. And so as I look back on this and walk through this with this uh, particular coach, I was like, oh, that's why I'm crazy, you know. <laughs> I come by this honestly, that there's this thing in, in me that I, I've had it my whole life that uh, for the most part, up until I became a Christian, I didn't think was a bad thing. In fact, it was sort of a, a badge of masculinity in my family growing up. Oh, look, he's throwing an absolute tantrum. What a man he is. You know, that was kind of the way it was treated in my family. But then when I become a Christian, I was like, oh, this is the thing the Lord's going to have to change in me. You know, I could... I could augment my behavior. I could reform some of my patterns. I, I, you know, I could change the, the way I thought about things. But that, that quick trigger, that, that short fuse, that seemed to, until still to this day at times, just reside deep within me. Now, I'm going to make a suggestion both today and throughout the course of this series that there is, um, there is zero difference between our spiritual maturity and our emotional maturity. That as we grow in faith in Jesus, as we, as we follow him, as we, are, uh, as, as we are sanctified by him, as we are sort of cleaned from the inside out, as we are made into the image and likeness of God by following Jesus, what often happens or what should be happening for us is not just reformatting or reforming our behavior, nor is it just changing what we think. It's often changing at a very deep level the way we feel. That, that, that growth as a disciple of Jesus is a process of growth in emotional maturity as well as spiritual maturity. And I'm going to make that case this morning, starting from this verse, but then walking it out over the course of the next several weeks throughout all of the scriptures, that as we grow in faith, we also grow in our ability to, to discern, manage, and, and, and mature amongst our, our heart and our emotions. Now, where do I get that? Well, Proverbs 4.23 is a, a, a great jumping off point. It's why we've titled this series, Guard Your Heart. Because here, as I said, it's, fa it's a father giving wisdom to a teenage son. Saying essentially that where your life will go will often be determined by what starts from within your heart. In fact, if we were to keep reading from verse 23 on down through the rest of the chapter, you would see those last four or five verses of Proverbs 4. After the author says, guard your heart, for from it springs all of life. He says, so watch your eyes and watch the steps that you take and watch the way your life is, is being shaped or, or formed or developed. Essentially, he's saying, look, it all starts with the heart. The things you see that captivate you, that take you down the road of lust or greed, the ways that you've ordered your habits such that they either bring about flourishing and, and growth or, or, or sin and rebellion, those things all begin in the heart. And so I want to take this one verse and sort of pull it apart this morning and take each one of the sections and then unpack that for us as we begin to ask the question, what does it mean for us to guard our heart? The first thing I want to talk about is the necessity of the heart, because I'm not going to be 100% convinced that all of you guys are with me in this. And so I want to, I want to prove to you this morning that the heart is the issue in, in the scriptures, in faith, and following Jesus, and knowing and, 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 and trusting the Lord, the heart is the issue, the necessity of the heart. That's why it says, above all else, guard your heart with all diligence. And then we're going to talk about what it means to guard your heart, so the necessity of the heart, guarding your heart. And then today, I just want to end by asking you about the state 
of your heart. Where is your heart today? First off, the necessity of the heart. Where do I get that idea? Well, in the ESV, as we just read, he says, keep your heart with all vigilance. Now, that's one translation. This is one of those verses that if you look it up in multiple translations, you're going to see it phrased multiple ways. So in the New American Standard, it tells us, watch over your heart with all diligence. In the NIV, above all else, guard your heart. And in the New Living, guard your heart above all else. So I'm starting with that clause. I like the way the NIV words it, above all else. So in other words, before you start trying to change your behavior, before, before you go down the road of reformatting what you think, above all else, let's guard our hearts. Above all else, the, the necessity of watching over your heart. Now, just so you don't think that I'm stripping this particular passage from the rest of the scriptures and building a case on it, uh, I would contend with you this morning that the, the heart or the necessity of, of the focus on the heart is the priority of all of the scriptures. Now, I could go back before Proverbs to make that point. I could show you places like in the book of Exodus, I believe, where Israel is taken out of Egypt in a, in, in, by, by miracles, by plagues, by these things that the Lord has done. But as soon as they're removed out of Egypt, the people got out of Egypt in an instant, but it's going to take a long time to get the Egypt out of the people. And they contend with God and they complain. And we see all of these manifestations of wayward hearts Despite the fact that the people have been redeemed and delivered, we can look there. We can look at, for instance, Ezekiel chapter 36 this morning, where the prophet Ezekiel goes, once again, Israel is in exile. Once again, Israel has been banished from, from, from the, the land that God had promised to them. And Ezekiel comes and makes a prophecy to God's people. And he says, look, there's going to be a new covenant. And when this new covenant happens, God is going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He's going to remove from within you the, the, this, this well, the, this spring that is corrupted, that is poison. And he's going to take it out and he's going to give you a heart of flesh. He's going to wash you and clean you up. And he's going to write his law, not on your brains, not merely in your actions. He's going to write it on your hearts so that you begin to do what God wants you to do. You want to do what God wants you to do. The great transformation of the human spirit and being happens at the level of the heart. And then you may push back and say, okay, well, that's the Old Testament. And I would say, man, look at Mark's gospel. Look at the way the gospel of Mark frames the ministry of Jesus. I just grabbed a handful of references this week as I pre prepared for this. When you read Mark's gospel and he tells the story of Jesus' ministry, chapter 2, verse 8, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 7, verse 6, chapter 7, 19 through 21, chapter 12, over and over and over again, Mark's saying this, Jesus was, was looking at their hearts. Jesus discerned what was within them. Jesus said that your hearts are far from me. Jesus said, if you want to obey the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Time and time and time again, the ministry of Jesus, at least according to Mark's gospel, is a ministry of changing the heart. You say, okay, well, that's one gospel. Look at Luke and Matthew next time. Go look at Luke and Matthew. Find the phrase that Luke and Matthew use most significantly, most predominantly, about what Jesus had towards people. It wasn't a will. It wasn't his way of thinking. He had compassion. The ministry of Jesus was defined by the disposition of his heart towards people. 
We talked about this as we studied Matthew's gospel. The Greek word is splonknizomai. It's this word that Matthew uses over and over and over again. When Jesus looked upon the masses, when he looked upon the widow at Nain, when he looked upon Jerusalem, when he saw his disciples, he had compassion on them. And, and just the idea that Jesus had arrived at such a place from within himself, that the thing that he felt towards people was a particular disposition of, of compassion such that he would move and act on their behalf shows us how significant it is for that we should pay attention to our hearts. I could go on and on and on. The Apostle Paul references multiple times Colossians, Ephesians, and Galatians, most notably, that you should avoid having a hard heart. And that whenever we are transformed by grace through faith, God takes our old heart out and puts a new heart in, just as Ezekiel prophesied. The story of the scriptures is a story of God changing the hearts and lives of people. We have to guard our heart. It's a necessity because it's the foundational forefront by which we become followers of Jesus and grow into a life that looks like the life of Jesus. It's the second reason, though, why I would say that the necessity of the heart is so important for us today, and even why I would probably say, well, we need to study it as a church right now, is because I believe we are in a cultural crisis as it pertains to the heart. I believe the church, should the church continue to do what the church is often so guilty of doing, which is focusing on the mind or focusing on the will, if we neglect the heart, the, one of the primary problems that, are, that is developing in our culture will only continue to worsen. I believe right now we live in an age where people are easily triggered, where we're super sensitive to unintentional slights, where we have a really hard time having thick skin. It seems to be that, as one psychologist, Murray Bowen, said, we are in a state of societal regression, that, that human beings are no longer giving one another the benefit of the doubt. We're looking for ways to find offense. We're constantly reactive. We're always moving at the speed of the most anxious person in the room. And when that sets in, as a people, the heart becomes a, a primary battleground for the things of God to, 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 to show up or to be manifest in the lives of the people of God. If I were to categorize the spirit of the age within which we live, I would call it the anti-fruit of the spirit. Right? So you know how Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit in the New Testament. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those eight qualities are characteristics. Two things I would point out to you about them. They all have a particular heart disposition tied to them. Right? Gentleness is an act, but gentleness is also a posture, a, pos a posture that starts from within before it can be manifested without. And we live in an age that I would say is the anti-fruit of the spirit. So we've traded hate for love. Instead of joy, we're chronically depressed. Instead of peace, we find conflict to be somewhat satisfying. That's why we're drawn to social media, after all. Instead of, instead of um, uh, uh, patience, we have a lack of impulse control. No one's able to show restraint anymore. We're all flying off the handle. Chomping at the bit to get into some sort of conflict with each other. Instead of kindness, we level labels and attacks at others. Instead of, instead of gentleness, we have barbarism. Instead of faithfulness, we call that passivity. If we look at someone in self control, we may think of them as weak. The spirit of the age has so corrupted the hearts of even God's people that we've traded in the fruit of the spirit for an anti fruit of the spirit. And we are at a state where, if we're not careful as the people of God, the very defining feature of a people who are possessed by the Lord Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit residing within them, will be lost if we don't go back and talk about what it means to guard the heart. 
Just this last week, Samuel James wrote a fantastic article from Mere Orthodoxy called Does Maturity Still Matter? Which is kind of what we're talking about this morning. Can we grow up emotionally? Can we be adults? He says, American culture seems stuck in a defensive adolescence that lacks both the innocence and wonder of childhood and the realism and long-term thinking of adulthood. That is very well stated. We've lost the wonder and the innocence of childhood, and yet we can't think about long-term consequences. We are culturally angry adolescents. He goes on. He says, it seems to me that we need to seriously consider the possibility that the spiritual maturity and spiritual effectiveness of movements and organizations are deeply connected, and that it is impossible to expect genuine effectiveness where the structure of the organization fails to push members towards maturity. In other words, if I as your pastor or our elders as your leaders or our deacons as lead servants enter into the fray of this combative, defensive, impulsive, overly reactive culture that we find ourselves in, we will all be stunted in our spiritual and emotional maturity, and we will not make a bit of difference in a world that is cascading and descending into the hell of this adolescent emotional posture. We've got to step up. And we step up by having our hearts guarded, by paying attention to these things, by seeing that this is a cultural crisis. Because ultimately for the church, we have to see the necessity of the heart as a matter of discipleship, because it is. That if we're going to follow Jesus, we don't just follow him with our will. We don't just follow him with our brains. It's not just a matter of thinking. It's an act of submitting and surrendering to him, our emotional health and our emotional maturity. One of the resources you'll hear me appeal to a lot in this series is a book written by a guy named Pete Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He wrote it, I don't know, a couple dozen years ago maybe. It was a formative book for me about 10 years ago talking about this very matter. When my eyes were open and I saw, oh, this problem of the way men handled conflict in my family is something the Lord wants to sanctify in me. He doesn't just want me to think different thoughts. He doesn't want me to just turn over new leaves. He wants to change that impulse. That thing deep down in my bones that feels like it was passed on in my DNA. Like he wants to reframe, reformat that for me as well. Scazzaro writes in that book, he says, Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. I don't know if you're convinced this morning, but this is the work that the Lord has summoned us to as his people. He wants us to, 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 to submit and surrender our hearts the very state of our emotions, our being, to lay that before him, to no longer be satisfied with just saying, well, this is how I'm wired, but instead to undergo the deep spiritual transformation of having our emotions worked on by the, by the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus. So to do that, the writer of Proverbs here says, like the father to the son, we've got to guard our hearts. What does that mean? What does it mean for you to have some sort of posture where you're Setting up guard where you're watching your heart is maybe one way it should be translated. Well, the first thing I would tell you is if you're going to guard your heart, you got to avoid the, the extremes. What do I mean by avoid the extremes? Uh, on, on the extreme of guarding your heart, some folks will take the heart and they'll say it's irrelevant. Okay? We've kind of dealt with that, but I'll talk about it just a little bit more because I want to really press on that this morning. And then on the other extreme, all of life is all heart. So we are constantly in the vortex of our emotions. We are tossed to and fro by whatever we're feeling at the moment. Our thinking gets shut down. Our, our, our ability to act in responsible or non-reactive ways gets, gets squashed, and we just 
kind of become whatever we're feeling in the moment. I'm going to touch on both of those for just a second, the extremes of the heart. The first one is the no heart mentality. It's a mentality that I see prevalent a lot of times, especially amongst uh, those more theologically inclined, those who like to study the scriptures and probe it for every detail that they can get. They, they tend to think of following Jesus as merely a cerebral matter, as if all Jesus wants us to do is surrender to him our brains. And then maybe perhaps if we think the right things, then we'll eventually do the right things. And I'm not discounting thinking the right things or doing the right things, but if you cut the heart out of the equation, you lose any sense of power or momentum from which you can actually Become that sort of person. The heart is where all of this begins to transpire. That's what the author of Hebrews says here. For from the heart springs all of life. It's what Jesus says. A bad tree is not going to bear good fruit. And a good tree is not going to bear bad fruit. It's from the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The Greeks had this in mind in the New Testament times as well. That the human being was merely mind and body. Emotions were, your emotions were a problem to be solved. Not something to be looked at or considered. One of my favorite books on this subject was written by James K.A. Smith a few years back called You Are What You Love. Jamie Smith says in that book, he says, Christians have uh, undiscerningly thought of themselves as brains on a stick, that we can just think our ways into holiness and sanctification, not realizing that you are what you love. The primary battle you always fight is at the level of love. You look at any sin pattern in your life, you go back to the root, what's there? You love something inordinately. It can even be a good thing that you've turned into a God thing, and now it's an enslaving thing. It's always about the heart. But the other end of that extreme is to be all heart, to, to, to give too much emphasis, to overemphasize it, to the neglect of the will or the mind. Scholar and um, psychologist Ed Welch says, emotions are the language of the heart. We've got to learn how to speak them, but that's not all we should be listening to. Our emotions are, be, are meant to be brought under the light of the word. God's word is meant to shed light on what it is we're feeling. And then we surrender what we feel to what God has revealed to be true. If we use our most recent liver shiver to be the litmus test for what God may be saying to the neglect of scripture, we're not faithfully following Jesus. We're just following our own guts and our own hearts. So there's a corrective that needs to happen in all of our lives to one degree or the other. Are you a no-heart type? Or are you an all-heart type? At either rate, we've got to pay attention to it. We've got to guard it because on both ends of those ex extremes lie dangers. And that's essentially what this passage is calling us to, to pay attention. The guarding here is not to set up defensiveness as much as it is to watch, to be on the lookout, to be attentive to, to be perceptive of what's going on in the heart. So you can look at places in your scriptures like the Psalms. I believe the Psalms are the quintessential example in God's word of what it means for the people of God to be fully human, to feel things, but also to pay attention to those things and then to bring those things under the, the, the watchful eye of a God who cares for us. Read the Psalms sometimes and try to figure out what feelings aren't present. Spoiler alert, they're all there. You'll see everything from despair and depression to, to anger to bordering on hatred. That's, David's praying, God, okay, those are my enemies. Kill them. He's feeling something. They're singing songs that are ripe with, with joy and with, with relief and, and with resplendent worship. And they're also praying prayers that say, God, I would rather be dead than go through this. All the feelings are present there, but they're paying attention to them. They're not neglecting them, sweeping them up under the rug. They're not spiritualizing them and saying, God, I know that my life is really hard right now, but 
I'm going to suck it up for you. There's no psalm that sounds like that. The psalms are like, God, I don't know what I'm going to do next unless you show up. Feelings are there. The emotions are there. The heart is there. But it's, there's an attentiveness to it. And the reason for that is because of what Psalm, Proverbs 4 tells us right here. Your life issues from the heart. How you live will often be directed by what's going on. You've got to be paying attention to it. Again, this is a bit of a longer quote, but Schizero, I think, nails it in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says, like most Christians, I was taught that almost all feelings are unreliable and not to be trusted. They go up and down and are the last thing we should be attending to in our spiritual lives. It is true that some Christians live in the extreme of following their feelings in an unhealthy, unbiblical way. It is more common, however, to encounter Christians who do not believe that they have permission to admit their feelings or to express them openly. This applies especially to such difficult feelings as fear, sadness, shame, anger, hurt, and pain. To feel is to be human. To minimize or deny what we feel is a distortion of what it means to be image bearers of God. To the degree that we are unable to express our emotions, we remain impaired in our ability to love God, others, and ourselves. Why? Because our feelings are a component of what it, be, what it means to be made in the image of God. To cut them out of our spirituality is to slice off an essential part of our humanity. One of the things that's often struck me as I've gone on you know, mission trips or been a part of the global church in various parts of the world is how much freer and open those other places tend to be with how they feel than we tend to be here. I've been in services in India where the entire room seems to be wailing and crying. I've been in, in, in services in Nicaragua where the entire gathering is, is just overflowing with joy. And there's an expressiveness of that where there's, there's smiles and happiness. There's, there's lack of the, 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 the reservations that they exude are not because of some social norms. It's because the, it's what they're feeling at the time. So I think perhaps it could be liberating for us as Christians to admit we are made in the image of God and God gave us emotions. He wants us to feel certain things, not to numb them, not to try to escape them, and not to live in light of them, but to bring them under the light of his word, to guard our heart by paying attention in some way to what's going on within us. And lastly, I would say to guard your heart, you're going to have to go to the well. To guard your heart, you've got to go to the well. What do I mean by that? One of my favorite passages, uh, uh, one of my favorite sermons on this particular passage that we're looking at comes from a, a British preacher named Charles Spurgeon. Been here any amount of time, I've probably quoted him a few times. Spurgeon has a, a, passage, a sermon on this passage where he, he, he gives a metaphor to the church. He says, okay, imagine, imagine that there's a reservoir in the middle of a village or a town. And this reservoir, this, this, water, uh, this you know, water tower, whatever it may be, supplies the water for, for all of the village or all of the town. And then he says, suppose that someone comes in and poisons it. He, he says, most of what Christianity tries to do, at least in his day and age, and I would argue maybe even more so in ours, is that we look at the poisoned well and we think, you know what would help this if we changed out the pipes? We just got new habits, if we rerouted some things, if we tried to channel this in a different direction. Or they say, let's get a new pump. Let's find a new energy. Let's find a new source that will kind of lead this in a different direction. He says, they never think the well's got to be changed. What's deep within the reservoir has got to be recycled in some way. It's got to come out fresh and clean on the other side. And Spurgeon says, look, if, if you don't go to the well and address the well, then whatever flows downhill from there is going to poison everything. The heart doesn't change. Whatever changes you make in behavior, whatever changes you make in thinking, it's still going to be corrupted. So he tells everyone, 
The miracle of conversion, the miracle of salvation, the miracle of following Jesus is that we get new hearts. The water gets changed out. It's no longer poisoned. It's no longer corrupted. So that everything that flows out then can be good. He says the, the, the goal then of following Jesus is to always be going back to the well, always be going back to the source of true joy, the, the, the source that can hear your depression, that can hear your pain, that can hear your anguish, and actually change and transform your heart in the process. He asks the question towards the end of the sermon. He says, how can I, how can I keep my heart full? How can I keep my emotions strong? How can I keep my desires burning and my zeal for the Lord inflamed? If you have all your springs in God, your heart will be full enough. If you go to the foot of the cross, there your heart will be bathed in love and gratitude. If you enjoy frequent rest and there talk with God, it is there that your heart shall be full of calm resolve. Continually draw your impulses, your life, the whole of your being from the Holy Spirit, without whom you can do nothing. The author of the Proverbs here is telling his son, look, guard your heart for from it flows all of life. You've got to keep going back to the well, the resource of the heart that can lead the heart into a healthy, renewed, and sanctified process throughout the remainder of life. And so that leads me to just ask this one final question this morning. What is the state of your heart? Put your behavior on a shelf for a second. Let's not think about what you've been thinking about. Let's just talk about your heart for a second. What's going on deep down? What's, that, um, what's your 3 a.m. wake-up call consist of these days? You guys know what that is, right? As the older I get, I'm waking up at 3, whether I want to or not. And there's always something that as soon as I realize, oh, no, I'm awake, the second thought is, oh, I'm thinking about that again. What's that? What, what's lingering there? What's, what's causing you either despair and doubt or frustration? What's grieving you? Are there deep-seated sorrows that you can't seem to deal with or process? Are you numb? Have you sought to do whatever you can do to turn off the heart, to ignore it, to, to move on and get on with life because it's kind of an encumbrance to whatever it is you want to do? What's going on in your heart? I like the way John Tyson says this. He says, no man or woman sets out on the journey of life to lose their heart. It just kind of happens along the way. We live in an age of such anxiety with so much to do and with so much responsibility that piece by piece our joy is smothered, our vision is blocked, and our hope is eroded. Tyson goes on to say, usually that happens because of three things. Obligation, neglect, and pace. Obligation. We just keep on taking on responsibilities. And bit by bit, we add things to our life such that bills and relationships and commitments and poor boundaries, all those things begin to, to rob us of the space that our soul needs to breathe. And so life becomes one big giant work to pay off our ever-increasing debt, whatever that debt may be. And he says sometimes it's due to neglect. As we journey through life, things like play and wonder and delight and exploration, those things feel like luxuries and not necessities. And so we neglect our hearts because no one's going to force you to experience joy, but someone will make sure you pay your mortgage, right? So you take on the responsibilities, you neglect what's going on at a soul level, and then he says life becomes a long road called I should. And everything's determined by your shoulds. And then lastly, we just adopt a pace that's unsustainable. Increased speed does not increase meaning. We're doing more and more. We're limiting our time. We experience le less satisfaction in the process. We're overscheduling and overtaxing our very selves. 
It's what Henry Nelman warned us of. Our schedules are full, but our lives become empty. And our heart shrivels up and dies. So where's your heart this morning? Have you paid attention to it? Have you guarded it? Have you brought it before the Lord? Have you asked him to meet you there? Have you brought the emotions that you feel to the Lord in such a way to where you can even admit, I don't know what to do with these, but I know you do. And like the psalmist, I'll let you meet me here and I'll deal with whatever comes to the surface. Where's your heart this morning? Fathers, we begin this journey together. Would you help us to increase our capacity to understand what you're doing at a soul level in each of our individual lives? God, would you help us to, to process that in a way that's healthy, in a way that, that sees that all of life issues from the heart and our emotional health is of an extreme priority to, to you, uh, to us, to, to our loved ones, to our family, and even to our church and to the world. For if we can't address these things, we merely adopt a posture of a culture amidst chaos and crisis. It's frenetic with energy and anxiety, but never accomplishing much, choking out the life within us as we, as we do all the things we do. So, Lord, today, would we find from your spirit the the power that we need to begin this journey in an honest way, but also in a way that brings life. Lord, would you remind us that it is for the joy set before Jesus that he took on the cross and scorned its shame so that we could be seated at your right hand along with him forever. We We could rule and reign with him in your kingdom where heaven and earth would come together, where righteousness would would be ours forever, and Lord, where there would be no more mourning, weeping, tears, or pain. So God, with that future in mind, let us pray as a people who believe it. Let us enjoy it even in the here and now. And let us spread it around the world as a city on a hill, as a light to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.